0: So, this morning, I want to talk about um, wise attention and the way that we pay wise attention. So, wise attention, uh, yoniso manisikara, is really what the Buddha talked about when he gave his instructions on practice. And because, in the, in the discourses of the Buddha that we have, much there's very little specific instruction about meditation. There is a, one large uh, discourse that we talk about um, a lot, called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Four Foundations, or the Four Ways to Establish Mindfulness. But even so, he really talks in that instruction about how to go to the root of a tree or or an empty hut or um, into a forest and cross cross one's legs and he says, put mindfulness, establish mindfulness in front of us. But he doesn't really talk about how to establish mindfulness other than the objects that we use and he tells us to observe internally and externally. So as a result, when you come to different meditation centers and different um, traditions and in different uh, different uh, lineages, and you'll hear about the Mahayana and the Hinayana and the Theravada and the Vajrayana and Tibetan and Zen. And, so it, it can be very confusing uh, in the beginning because it feels like Different people are giving you different instructions and you're not quite sure when to use them or how to use them or what to do. But that's because there are different um, ways of practice that may be appropriate in different circumstances. So, for instance, if we're feeling tight and... um, upset and having some difficult emotions and then we try to practice in a way that's very focused and tight and small and just seeing one thing at a time or taking one breath at a time. It may feel very um, constricting and almost as if we want to get up and scream and run out of the room. But if we're very settled, and the mind feels calm and everything feels really quite safe, it might be perfectly wonderful to do a practice such as that, where we're focusing down on one breath at a time, or one particular sensation at a time, or uh, one object of meditation at a time. So I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and listen as I just enumerate um, a few different ways of practice. And as I describe them, you can try them. And then I'm going to be silent after a while and you can choose at that point what practice you'd like to do, and I'll let you know how much time will sit so that you don't feel as if it's unbounded or beyond what you might be able to tolerate, but just see if you can just allow a flow with my words so that you hear different ways that you may approach practice. And for a beginner this may feel a little bit confusing. So if it does, what you can always do is just literally pay attention to this breath as it's happening in the body. Not in a tight way, but just see if how many of the sensations that come with each breath can be felt in the moment. Not last breath or the next breath, but this breath. So that that will be our general instruction, just to be with the breath. So our meditation comes alive through a growing capacity to release our habitual entanglement in stories and plans and conflicts and worries all that make up this small sense of self that we have and so we this growing capacity to rest in awareness is essentially the basis of meditation. And so in meditation, we do this simply by acknowledging the moment-to-moment-to-moment experience that is uh, the changing conditions, the pleasure and pain, the praise and blame, the gain and loss, the litany of ideas and expectations that may arise in in our being. So without identifying with these, these changing conditions that are happening all the time, we can simply rest in awareness, simply be here, just knowing that we are aware human beings so that we hear sound, we feel emotions, we feel sensations in the body, we may feel uh, the changing emotions that come and go if we really pay attention, rather than simply having some concepts about how we're feeling. So we rest in awareness of this present moment, knowing exactly how it is right now in the body, in the heart, and in the mind. Sensations in the body, emotions in the heart, and thoughts in the mind coming and going, coming and going. So we rest in awareness itself beyond the conditions that are coming and going. And in so doing, we experience kind of lightness of heart. You can feel that right now, perhaps. Perhaps there is some heaviness in the heart, and yet if we rest in the simple awareness of even just knowing that heaviness in the heart, it's not that we're trying to get rid of it or trying to make it go away or trying to make it something different, but that simple turning, that simple awareness of knowing what is true will eventually begin to bring this lightness of heart. So we develop this capacity in meditation to rest in awareness, and this capacity nourishes concentration, which we call samadhi, that stabilizes and clarifies the mind, and it develops Wisdom, the ability to see things just as they are without our, the overlay of stories or without the confusion of our different emotions that also tend to overlay what is our bare experience. And so we can employ this awareness, this wise attention from the very start. When we first sit down to meditate, what do we do? We notice the body. So what are your sensations right now? Do you feel tingling, pressure, vibration, warmth, coolness? heaviness, lightness, tingling, what is happening in the body right now? And then we notice also what Whether the body and mind, as the Buddha instructs, are distracted, or steady, angry, peaceful, excited, worried, contracted, released, bound, or free. And in observing what is so, we can take a few deep breaths and relax. And this way, we make space for whatever situation we find in this body, mind, heart process. And from this ground of acceptance, we learn to use the transformative power of attention in a flexible and malleable way. We're not tight, we're not holding, we're not thinking it's got to be this way or that way. But wise attention then functions like a zoom lens on our experience. And often it's, it's helpful to steady our um, practice with close-up attention. We bring a very careful and um, close focus to our breath or a sensation or to the precise movement of feeling or thought. And eventually, we can become so absorbed in whatever that object is, that subject and object become one, that we're no longer us observing something, but we become the breath. We become the tingling in our toe we become whatever it is we are absorbed into. We become the sadness, the joy, the tingling. And in this we sense ourselves as being born and dying with each breath and each experience. Entanglement in our ordinary sense of self dissolves our troubles and fears drop away and our entire experience of the world shows itself to be impermanent ungraspable and selfless in this way wisdom is born but if we feel as if this close focus or attention is creating an unnecessary sense of tightness and struggle We can find a more open way to pay attention. Instead of focusing on the breath alone, we can feel the energy of our whole body. It's as if awareness sits on our shoulder and respectfully acknowledges a breath. pain in our legs, a thought about what happened last night or what may happen tonight, a feeling of sadness, a passing memory or plan. And in this way, wise attention has this very gracious witnessing quality, acknowledging every event, boredom, jealousy, plans, excitement, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, with a slight bow. Moment by moment we release the illusion of getting somewhere and we rest in the timeless present. Witnessing with easy awareness everything that passes by. And as we let go, our innate freedom and wisdom manifest. Nothing to have, nothing to be, just as my teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, called this resting simply in the one who knows. Not me, not I, the one who knows. Yet we may find ourselves caught in the grip of some kind of repetitive thought pattern or painful situation or lost in uh, physical or emotional suffering. And perhaps there is chaos or noise around us we can hear that we can all hear the music we sit and the heart is tight and the body and mind are not relaxed not gracious and even the witnessing may seem tedious or forced or effortful in this circumstance we open our lens as wide as is possible and let our awareness become like space or the sky. As the Buddha instructs in one of his discourses, develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle or harm. Rest in a mind like vast sky. We open our attention like space, letting experience arise without any boundaries, without inside or outside. Instead of feeling like the mind is in the head, we let go and experience the mind's awareness as open, as spacious, boundless, vast. And we allow awareness to experience consciousness not entangled in the particular conditions of sound or feelings, but a consciousness independent of all of the changing conditions we rest in pure awareness itself timeless unborn and for us this is not an ideal or distant experience it's immediate always and always accessible and ever present liberating and this then can become the resting place of your wise heart. So whether fully absorbed, graciously witnessing, or open and spacious, you can choose the best way to practice awareness. All of these ways, fully absorbed in the minute detail of moment-to-moment experience, Simply witnessing what is true, or being open and spacious like the vast sky, being aware of awareness itself. Awareness is infinitely malleable, our ability to be present, and so it's important not to fixate on any one form as best. Awareness cannot be limited. Consciousness is large, it's small, it's particular, and it's universal. So any way that the mind uh, feels as if it can drop in, relax, and open in this moment is the right practice for the mind. And sometimes our practice can embrace every single one of these perspectives. Every time we release entanglement and identification, we experience freedom. But there may be a shadow in each one. So if we're practicing spacious awareness be careful that the mind doesn't space out completely but that there is a groundedness, a still knowing of being in this body on this earth. If we become too absorbed we can. it can lead to denial and the Ignoring of other experiences. There can be this false sense of me or I as a witness, and the object of our attention being some external object. And these are all forms of subtle meditative clinging. When you realize that that's what's happened, you see it, you're aware of it, and you let it go. And you learn to work with all of the lenses of awareness. And the more you trust in the ground of awareness itself, the more it will grow. You will learn to relax and to let go. In any moment when we're caught, caught by an idea, a thought, a sensation, a concept, as soon as we notice it, we can let go. Awareness will step in, and there will be a presence without judging or resisting. Close in or vast, near or far, awareness will illuminate how impossible it is to grasp the universe. The mind and the heart will be returned to their natural birthright luminous and free. One of the most accessible ways to open to spacious awareness is through the ear door, through hearing listening to the sounds of the universe around us. We may find resistance to certain sounds. But the river of sound comes and goes completely naturally. It arises, it passes, it it, um, swells in volume, it recedes. And we'll know that if we really listen carefully, Listening can bring the mind to a naturally balanced state of openness and attention. And it can be a really awareness of sound and space, can be a perfect way to begin to practice. Because it initiates the sitting period with wakeful ease and spacious letting go. So, Listen now to the sounds of the universe coming and going. Sit comfortably and be at ease. and Let your body be at rest and your breathing be natural. Take several full breaths and release them gently and allow yourself to be still as you listen deeply, knowing awareness itself, the ability to simply know, to be here, the one who knows. Listen to the play of sounds around you, loud, soft, far, near, Just listen. Notice how all sounds arise and vanish, leaving no trace, moment to moment. Listen for a time in an open and relaxed way. Imagine as you listen that the mind is not limited to the head but it's expanding like the sky, open, clear, vast, like space, no inside, no outside. Let your mind extend into every direction like the sky. Sounds you hear arise and pass away in the open space of your own mind. Relax in this openness and just listen. Like clouds in the vast sky of your own awareness. and the play of the sounds moving through the sky appearing and disappearing without resistance And as you rest in this open awareness, notice how thoughts and images also arise and vanish like sounds. Let these thoughts and images come and go without resistance and without struggle. Pleasant, unpleasant thoughts, pictures, words and feelings move unrestricted in this open space of mind problems, possibilities, joys, sorrows come and go like clouds in the clear sky of the mind. awareness, this spacious awareness to notice the body, how the sensations of breath and body float and change in the same open sky of awareness. Breath is breathing itself, moving like a breeze through the sky, the body is not solid, It's felt as areas of hardness and softness, pressure and tingling, warm and cool. All floating in the space of the mind's awareness. Rest in this openness. Let sensations float and change. Allow all thoughts and images, feelings and sounds to come and go like clouds in the clear, open space of awareness. And pay attention to the awareness itself. Notice how open space of awareness is naturally clear, transparent, timeless and without conflict, allowing all things, but definitely not limited by them. The Buddha said, O nobly born, remember the pure open sky of your own true nature. Return to it, trust it, it is home. For the next 15 minutes I'll be silent and allow you to practice in the way that you see fit. Outside, no outside. A vast space of awareness. A wall of sound coming and going. Rest in the one who knows. Breath breathing itself, thoughts coming and going, sensations of vibration, tingling, warmth and cool, pressure, hardness and softness, no inside, no outside. As you may have noticed in your meditation, everything is coming and going all the time. It's a um, constant, irrepressible, and undeniable fact of life, that everything changes constantly. we sometimes can construct seemingly solid worlds of self, of people, of places, of relationships and things. And yet, what we do know is that we all share a great vulnerability. Whoever we are, however we are, whatever our station is in life, our profession, our family of birth, our culture of origin, whoever and however we are, we all share that great vulnerability. One of the great truths that the Buddha expressed, which seems simple when we hear it, but it's quite profound, is that whatever has the nature to arise, will also pass away, and that includes us. And sometimes things pass in peaceful and orderly ways, and sometimes in violently destructive ways. But the falling apart of conditioned and constructed things is inherent in their very nature. My teacher's teacher, a wonderful monk called Ajahn Chah, who had lived in the northern reaches of Thailand in the 20th century, was well known for his humorous quips, and which always were tinned with some profundity. And someone gave him a beautiful cup. It was antique and you know, had fabulous decoration on it and all of that. And he used it like an everyday cup and, uh, you know, did whatever he needed to do with it. And students said, Ajahn Chah, this is a very valuable antique cup and perhaps you should just put it on display and not use it because it's really valuable and there's the possibility that you'll break it. And Ajahn Chah said, look at this cup. It's already broken. That inherent in its nature is brokenness. And I love that story because we sometimes veil from our own internal and external eyes this nature of impermanence. We want to deny it, push it away, not deal with it. But there it is, so even in the most perfect cup, there is already a crack. Leonard Cohen, the famous Zen master, actually, (laughs) said, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. So we see it in our own daily life, in the normal changes of our lives, in the inevitable illness and decay of our own bodies, in conditions of social and economic turmoil. We've certainly been through quite a, a period of economic turmoil in the last... 10 years. We see it in nature and in the fall of civilizations. Where is the great civilization of Rome or Greece? Where are all of these wonderful civilizations that seemed at the time to be so permanent? The Cold War, the Berlin Wall, all of these things were that even we've lived through and seen how what we thought was so solid, so here forever, the World Trade Center, it all passes away. It's in the explosion and collapse of stars. And although we intellectually know it's the nature of all things, to arise and pass, we don't always know it in our very being in ourselves. So the Buddha pointed to this inherent instability of the way things are, of changing conditions, and of the suffering that happens when we rely on conditions staying a certain way. Indeed, the first noble truth of his teachings, that there is suffering is not an abstract philosophical principle. It's real. It's what we experience. It reflects the openness and the honesty and the courage necessary to face the suffering that is there. And it's not always open, easy to open in this way, because for the untrained mind, it can be very very difficult to stay with stressful conditions stressful feelings unpleasant feelings loss and sometimes we can think that we practice so that we don't have to deal with this situation right that we could practice that maybe if we practice these feelings or situations will go away yet What I always appreciate about stories of the Buddha's life is how many difficulties he had to deal with. They were rife after his enlightenment, not before he became the one who knows the the Buddha, the awakened one. But certainly for the 45 years that he taught, afterwards there are many, 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 many stories of how his cousin tried to kill him and his, his clan and other clans were at war. Intrigues against him. He was slandered. And his cousin, Devadatta, Devadatta, tried to take his disciples away. There were wars between his mother's clan and his father's clan. And one of his disciples was murdered. So this points to our practice, not as a way of smoothing the vicissitudes of life, but as a training of the mind and heart for those very events. They will come. There is no denying that. So Dharma practice is more than simply living with ease or peace in our lives, although these are of great value. The Dharma reveals the most profound aspects of life and death, of suffering and the freedom from suffering. And the Buddha urged us to awaken from our ignorance out of the great magnitude of suffering that there is in this life, in this world. And this includes our own sufferings, too. So one of the insights that comes quite early on, actually, in practice is the ungovernability of life. And it comes quite early in practice, mainly because practice requires that we sit still. (laughs) So we think that's pretty simple, right? Sit down, close your eyes, You check out what's happening. You be with it. You're aware of it. Or you fall into awareness of awareness, whatever it is. And what do you know? Your leg goes numb, right? You think, oh, great, I'm going to close my eyes, and there's going to be great bliss, and I'm going to be peaceful, and it's going to be easy. And your, your, your foot goes numb. Or some terrible memory asserts itself and you can't get rid of it or a great sadness overwhelms you that you've been denying for so long or pushing away or not allowing yourself to feel and it asserts itself so we didn't invite these things we didn't ask for them and we begin to notice oh what comes to me is not within my governance. I'm not able to say, okay, body, now you'll feel good. right? You won't age, you'll stay right at that 23-year-old peak, right, Everything, No, no lines in the face, no nothing, right, no illness. It's not how it is, we know that. What, we've, what we discover is that things happen out of causes and conditions. So things happen when the appropriate conditions are there. Not because we want or will them to be a certain way. Our minds take off and obsess about this or that. And no matter how much we wish to end the obsession or think about something else, we can't wish it away. What the irony is, that as soon as you, try, as you, as soon as you stop trying to obliterate or annihilate it, that's when it usually goes away. So try not to think about pink elephants right now. <clears throat> this old exercise demonstrates the truth of this. We may wish that there was no famine, no violence, no war, but they will continue to arise as long as the conditions for them are there. Events are not in our control the way we think they are. And when we pretend that there is control, there's a great cost that we pay. When, they don't, when things don't happen the way we want them to happen, what happens? We get angry, frustrated, jealous, rageful, filled with hatred. This happens on an individual level Anybody not experienced those things, by the way? I would like to meet you. But it happens not just on an individual level, but on a collective level as well. Because what happens in the world is really a projection of all of our minds onto the world stage. So if we want a desired end, like the end of violence, for example, We need to understand the causes of violence. We need to understand the conditions necessary to bring those causes to an end. And it's not enough to simply wish or demand that it happens. Surprisingly, surprisingly, the more we let go of the illusion of control, the greater clarity we have in, uh, seeing, in seeing the necessity um, of conditions to accomplish our aims. So we need to see the causal conditions of arising phenomena and what conditions are necessary to bring about their end. So then, what is the appropriate response to violence or anger that seems to just come into the mind, certainly we don't invite it. It's not as if we have easy or simple answers. Yet we know from centuries, millennia of experience that hatred doesn't cease by hatred. And as the Buddha said, this is the eternal and universal law. And we only need to look around the world to see this truth for ourselves. The perennial um, wars of clans and sects and nations, Northern Ireland, India and Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Israel and Palestine, many places in Africa. Hatred and violence only breed more of the same. So it becomes a cycle of destruction from which it is hard to emerge. So when the Buddha said hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed, this is the eternal law, history has of course proved him right. And for oppressed people, this may seem impossible. Yes, I think it's because we look at what we think we should do, should do, should do, rather than the quality of our minds. We tend to want to fix it, rather than to look at what is our relationship to what's happening. And this is subtle and consequently often overlooked. So we could all benefit from this change of perspective. How am I relating to what is true? And we need to investigate our motivations in how we respond to what is happening in order to determine ethical values. Because it's always our motives that determines the long-range outcome. And we can't look at anything in a kind of isolated and disconnected way just in this moment, but to begin to really understand our own lives and the, the life of the whole universe in the context of a much longer timeline. I was listening to a, an interview this morning um, in, in the Unbeing program on NPR. Krista Tippett was um, interviewing a, a, a physicist, and it was absolutely scary um, and wonderful, actually. As they were, he was talking about the fact that time is all relative. And just looking at, uh, in in a way, he was confirming what the Buddha said, because he was talking about the fact that there is just um, an unfolding, an unfolding of causes. He didn't use the word causes and conditions. But what he said was, it's just an unfolding of things that, even our idea that we have choice that we have free will or choice is not true that we have the sensation of choice he said the sensation of choice i love that right we think we feel that you know in other words there's some impulse happening in the body and we think oh i'm going to make this choice but actually what he was pointing to was that there's a long long history of causes and conditions, complex causes and conditions constantly relating to each other and impinging on each other and influencing each other. And it comes to this moment in which there is this choice that we think we're making because we have a sensation of choice. But actually, the causes and conditions that have been set down, that have been rolling along all of these millennia, brings us to this moment brings us to this moment. And the choice, in a way, is inevitable. So our motives are what shift the the trajectory of these causes and conditions. In every moment, of course, our motive Is part of those causes and conditions, yes? And yet it's a very important piece of how we come to make the decisions that we make and do the things that we do. There's the usual example of a murderer and a surgeon, both using a knife and the victim dies. But the motives are completely different, yes? One is to take life, the other is to save life. Same action, same result, yet the difference is the motivation. So can we take action from a motivation of wisdom and compassion rather than from hatred and revenge? It's not enough to wrap ourselves in words of virtue, but to look deeply in every moment to see what our motives are. And when we look deeply to see what our motives are, we can actually shift them. But of course, how, what we do and what we think influences the next moment and the next moment. So every time the brain or the mind thinks a certain thought, the mind will incline towards that thought. So in the next moment, the fact that we had that thought before, that reinforces that quality of mind. And of course, if you're not philosophically inclined, but you're more scientifically inclined, the neurosurgeons have now confirmed that, that we wear Um, grooves into the brain, into the actual physical brain, by what we think and what we allow the mind to think. So our question then is not so much what acts are justified in a particular situation, but what is my intention with which I am abiding in this very moment. What motives are guiding my response here and now? And this immediately shifts from a conceptual idea of what is right and what is wrong, about good and bad, appropriate and inappropriate, to becoming aware of our personal and intimate, intentional relationship to this moment. And this is the practice of introspective awareness that is the heart of this revolutionary meditation practice that we practice this morning. That we're teaching the mind to be present, to be here, to know completely, profoundly, deeply, and precisely, and with kindness and compassion, exactly what is true in this moment. There's no wiggle room. Because if we're not aware of what is happening, our our response can never be appropriate. If we are not aware of what is happening right now, our response will not be appropriate. Once we look in this way, we see that anything that's rooted in attachment, in aversion, or in confusion, will contribute to more of the same. As the Buddha said, this leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from awakening. And conversely, Actions rooted in generosity, in loving kindness, and wisdom will have the opposite effect. So I'm not sure I completely agreed with, I think his name was Green. He was a a, a, a physics professor at Columbia. He wrote a book called The Elegant Universe. So I'm not sure, you know, and it's agree-disagree. Who am I to agree or disagree? He's got his physics, his laws of physics, right? And yet, there is this possibility always of shifting, shifting. And maybe this possibility of shifting is also made up of all of the causes and conditions that we've established before. You see, so you could get crazy, right? Right. Just thinking about it, right? Your mind could just explode, <laughs> right, literally. And yet, we can know that in every single moment, there is the possibility of using this training of the mind that we practice to see more clearly what is needed in this moment and to act in generosity and kindness and wisdom. So we can look into our own minds and see wholesome and unwholesome qualities arise. And this is ultimately for the benefit of all beings, because the forces for good and harm that play out in the world, as I said, are also uh, manifesting in our own personal minds and lives it's very difficult to illuminate unskillful mind states we don't like to we don't like to contemplate our shadow side right we don't like to contemplate what's difficult and we may feel more comfortable in the illusion that our minds and our lives are all based on the purest of intentions. Although much of it is, there are parts that are not. Anybody not have mixed intentions, not experienced? <laughs> Somebody said she did. <laughs> you do, you do, I thought so. It's very freeing to be able to see this and to look at this directly. Very freeing to be able to say, yes, there are times when I am not acting from the best of intentions. And one in the, one of the turning points in uh, Dharma practice happens when we realize it's more beneficial to see the defilements in our minds than not to see them. And What's really important is we see them without self-judgment and without hatred. And this openness is the only way that we can be honest about our motivations and to assess what is the wise response. So unskillful states are rooted in attachment, in aversion, and confusion or delusion. We see on the side of attachment how much of the harm in the world comes out of of greed, out of the greed for resources, for wealth or power. Certainly one of the things these days that's being discussed a lot is the growing inequality in income. And this difficulty where the Rich are becoming so wealthy, so rich, that it's beyond imagining. And at the other end of the spectrum, the poor are becoming poorer than is also imaginable. And how do we bridge that gap? Where, of course, people are entitled to the um, rewards of hard work. But why some more than others? And how do we temper the greed in our own hearts? Not just looking at them and saying they are too greedy, but really using our awareness that we train the mind to, to see all of the times, all of the places where greed arises in our own hearts. And tremendous suffering comes not just from attachment to material things but our opinions and our views and we see see again what the what that leads to the vitriol that is present now in our political discourse the lack of courtesy or respect or moral compass in terms of telling the truth this is right we think everything else is wrong. That's a setup for war, at war with ourselves, at war with each other, at war with our countries. When we think beliefs are absolute truths, conflict is inevitable. Why? Because we invariably will have different perspectives according to to the professor, right, according to all of the conditions that we have been subject to. parents, our culture, our country, our education, our uh, economic situation, all of these things matter. So when we loosen our grip on our own view, then we can listen and learn from others rather than trying to exterminate a point of view that doesn't jive with ours. Mingyur Rinpoche, one of our teachers, says, ultimately, we choose between the discomfort of being aware of mental problems and the discomfort of being nailed by them. Right? That if we're not aware of them, we will be nailed by them. Anger is a devastating power of mind also and leads again to violence in the world. Yet anger, aversion, and hatred are force, are tremendously seductive. The Buddha said, anger, with its poison tip, fevered climax, is murderously sweet. Anybody experience that? So these arise again in response to unpleasant situations, real or imagined. And sometimes we can actually enjoy plotting the revenge and carrying it out, right? But if we can practice with small irritations in our lives, train the heart in small things, then when more powerfully difficult circumstances arise in seeing the truth of our own humanity, we can turn away from hatred and revenge. So awareness is the process of transformation. Seems like such a simple thing we do. We sit and we listen to sound, we notice our irritation with the boom, 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 right? We want it to go away, don't they know we're meditating over here, what's wrong with them, right? Maybe we should call the police, get them to stop, right? Why? Because our heads don't want to hear it. But being able to just sit in the awareness of it. Did any, anybody experience this as transformative today? Just the ability to sit and be in the midst of an unpleasant sound, or what we think. For us, it's unpleasant. For them, it's really pleasant over there, right? They're loving it. They're moving their bodies, and they're really having a great time, and she's shouting, and they love it. Somebody's telling them what to do. We're sitting there saying, or am meditating, what's wrong with them? Right. And then the ability to simply open to it, to be aware, is a transformative moment. So whether it's fear or hatred or anger, we can look at our own patterns and see how we use anger and judgment sometimes simply because we don't want to feel fear. And this mindfulness allows us to open to and accept the fear, the anger, the hatred, the aversion. We need to open to what is true, to recognize the motivations from which we act, and see if we can do so from as wholesome a place as is possible. And we can practice loving kindness and compassion for our own benefit and for the benefit of the world. It is only through love and compassion that hatred ceases, hatred in our own hearts, whether internally or externally. These expressions of kindness are conditions for peace. I know you've experienced it when you've moved from a place of annoyance or irritation and anger to a response of kindness and compassion, right in that moment, if you really pay attention, you can actually feel the transformation in your body, in your mind, and in your heart. And we need to start with ourselves and in our own lives and let it radiate out as a force for good in the whole world. The Buddha's words from the Metta Sutta are a powerful prescription and prayer for our times. May all living beings be happy and at ease. May they be joyous and live in safety. May all beings, whether weak or strong, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far away, born or to be born, omitting none, be happy and at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, by anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Free from ill will and enmity. As you hear these words, you may think they may be too high or ideal. But it's a practice that you can start right now and right here, training the heart and mind. And that's what we do with our practice. We cultivate a new perspective, a new attitude, and kindness rather than greed or anger. And one day we notice that our response is indeed different. Not because we willed it to be so, but because the mind and heart have been so beautifully trained. It's one of generosity and loving kindness rather than of greed and anger. We may not notice when the change happens. But what we do know is that we managed to let go of whatever it is we needed to let go of. Something changed, even though you may not have noticed it. It's a very gentle fruition of systematic practice. So remember, our practice, the purpose of our practice is to awaken, to become free from that which holds us in bondage, to bring an end to suffering and to anguish. It's not to make our lives different in the sense that we only get pleasant experiences to deal with. We don't seek insight to suffer more or deprive ourselves in some way or to make ourselves unhappy. But it's a process. And it's not always easy. So this is because this path of awakening, of developing insight, almost always involves seeing our own foibles and also of leaving something behind. That's the hard part. But in letting go and leaving behind whatever it is, whether it's an illusion about ourselves or others, or anger or unforgiveness, or an image or a goal or a craving we've held on to, a particular belief or opinion or an area of contractedness, or even our pleasant illusions about ourselves, a whole new world opens up. I invite you to experiment and to actually pay attention so precisely that you actually see and feel those moments of transformation. Let's sit, just for a moment. And just reflect on what you need to become aware of your own self-righteousness, your anger or fear, and hold these in loving kindness and compassion for yourself, and if possible, with some humor. few minutes for questions.
1: Hi. Um, as you were talking, um, I was thinking about the about feelings arising, and there's something that I've been reading that um, perhaps I'm confused by. Can, I read in one book, um, mindfulness in um, the four foundations of mindfulness and he said that you can only feel one feeling at a time and when I'm meditating things are arising and falling and I thought about that yesterday in a real situation I was in my car the car is filthy from the snow and I have a minivan and I was pulling out and I backed up And I just, at a split moment, saw two people walking behind me, and they also, like, moved. And I got so angry with them, because it's like, I'm in a minivan. I could have killed them. And then, when I was driving away, I had the insight that I wasn't being mindful. I was someplace else, that I wasn't there, and that fear you talked about was, like, right with me, and you know, when feelings arise and fall, and I think about that fear, I had to let it go because I would have just been consumed by, it. they would have been killed by you, know, by, you know, all this. So, thinking about all those feelings, I'm just, you know, just sort of working that out, about feeling one thing at a time, and, you know, I, mean, I did to beat myself up because I wasn't being mindful, but it was just that whole series of things.
0: So, I think I heard a question in there but I'm not sure. I, I think it's about the... Was it the Anna Laya book on Four yeah, Foundations? No, it no, wasn't
1: that. Well, I'm, I'm reading that one, but it was the uh, uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And just the whole thing about feeling one feeling
0: Yeah, time. yeah. So that's I the question, right? Because what, because what you experienced was like a flood of different feelings and emotions and uh, probably fear coming up in the mind, in, in the body, and the adrenaline that comes in the body and so many things seem to be happening all at the same time. So you're asking the question about how is it possible to just feel one thing at a time? So, you know, we tend to... So our lives are are always like that. There is a... a, It's like when you listen to sound, what you'll notice is that until you pay attention, it feels like just a cacophony of sound. Right? That, you know, the bells are ringing, the person is calling, the, the dance moves, and, you know, the sirens happening, and somebody's screaming, and somebody's shifting in the room, and the floor creaks, and somebody gets up, and it feels like it's just a cacophony all together, and that you're hearing it all at the same time. What, However, consciousness does only admit one thing at a time. So it's like um, it's like when you watch a movie. I don't know how it is now, but I, I was in the movie business many, 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 many years ago when they used film, right? And there were frames, right? And so in one, one frame, the person is like that. And then in the next frame, they're like that and then in the next frame, they are like that. But what we're seeing is, right? Now, the mind is actually seeing that, that, that. But, our, but we, the consciousness is seeing that, but we put it together as something continuous. And so it feels like it's all happening at the same time. And what happens when we meditate is we begin to really notice that very, very well, is we begin to dis- we begin to notice how when we're listening to what feels like a river of sound, we hear the siren go ee! and then the bell goes ding, and then the sound goes ah, and we see that. But until the mind gets still, and settles down, and actually pays attention from moment to moment to moment, we. It makes the connection of continuity, and so we don't really see. Now, what's the use of that? What's the use of being able to see that we're just knowing one thing at a time? We're beginning to pay attention in such a precise way that all of the things that we add to what is barely happening, and what I mean by barely happening, what is actually simply happening that we're, we're adding all of this extra to, is we're able to respond to what is actually happening. So somebody says something to you, right? Yeah. Now let's take your situation actually. So these people are behind your car. And what a miracle that in that moment, your attention was good enough that you actually noticed that there was a body behind the car and that in the next moment, there was an an appropriate response, right? So, but if you weren't paying attention, if you were listening to the radio or talking on the phone, because the mind was was only paying attention to that, you wouldn't have seen the bodies in in the mirror, right? but you were actually paying attention to what you were doing. You were paying attention from moment to moment to moment of what was true, and you were able to respond appropriately. So we train the mind. You know, I know that there's like a big, you know, we love multitasking, the idea of multitasking, you know, so we're on the phone and on the computer and telling our kid what to do and, you know, thinking about what's going to happen in the next meeting. at the same time and supposedly that's a really great way to be it's exhausting first of all never mind the consequences of inappropriate response right so you're saying on the phone something because you're mindless about the phone call because you're thinking about the meeting next week and then you have consequences with the phone call right so if you if you let the mind settle down so that can actually know consciousness clearly it can be aware of its awareness, we respond appropriately. Is that, it? I don't know if that yeah, helps. God, that's really, yeah, that's very good because I found it in this, when I was, as I was meditating that it was, I was fairly aware of it. There was one emotion at a time versus, you know, a flood.
1: What happened when I was in actual so. Yeah.
0: So we take it one at a time, and then we can respond to what's happening one at a time. And of course, there are times when we need to do a bunch of things, right? So we need to be talking on the phone while we're undoing the, you know, while we're taking the laundry out of the washing machine. But then we know I'm talking on the phone and taking it out of the washing machine, and and we're probably talking on the phone, taking it out, talking on the phone. But we think we're talking on the phone and taking it out at the same time, but we're not. We're actually doing the two things, but the mind is conflating them. So, we miss, we miss a lot. Yeah. You're welcome, thanks for the question. Hi. Hi.
1: Um, this goes back to what we did earlier this morning, the different types of meditating. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes lately I've been finding that um, when I'm very tired, Or wound up, I prefer to walk instead of sit. And I kind of go through in my mind like, do I need to exert the effort and try harder and sit? Or can I just go for the day? And is walking, like, would it just be like another category of what you.
0: So when you say walking, do you mean actual intentional meditative walking? the Buddha said there are four ways to, do, to practice, four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. The only one we don't teach is lying down. But sometimes we do, sometimes we actually do body scans with people lying down, but the room is too small to do it. Um, so the one of the, there's a, an understanding that our practice consists of bare attention and clear comprehension. And there are four clear comprehensions, right? There's a comprehension of purpose, what is my purpose? Of suitability, is what I'm about to do suitable to achieve my purpose? The domain of meditation and clear comprehension of non-delusion. The domain of meditation is in all activities. We're paying attention everywhere we are. So whether we're walking, standing, sitting or lying down, the domain of meditation is there. So if, if, if you're going to do walking meditation and you do it intentionally, it's beautiful practice. And it bridges you into your daily life. Because in daily life, we're constantly moving, shifting, and making decisions and doing all kinds of things. So the ability to move and be aware that we're moving is a very helpful practice. It's part of the domain of meditation, so have clear comprehension of that while you're doing your walking. You're welcome. So that's all we have time for. If you had a question and I didn't get to it, I'll have a few minutes afterwards. So thank you very much for your attendance here today, your presence. Um, I enjoyed it, I hope you did too and um, please uh, see New York Insight as your spiritual home. We we hope that you feel that we've established um, an environment where you can come and feel that this is a place that you can practice in safety, in kindness, in love, and in compassion, and that the wisdom, wisdom that you seek is not very far away. So you're very welcome to come here Uh, In the afternoons, if you're in the city and you want just a moment to be uh, quiet and at ease, we have hours that you can look up and you can come and sit here quietly, or the very many offerings that are made by our wonderful teachers. So please join me in dedicating the merit of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere, without exception. May all beings be safe from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and strong and live with ease. May all beings be free from suffering and be completely free. Thank you so much for your attention. Have a great week.